Well, some people were accusing Paul of some unjust things, not very good things. Now, Paul writes a letter to that. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Embry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We discover the Bible. The two letters of Corinthians are fascinating. Today, in about three minutes, we're going to explore the letter of 2 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 10, and it is good. So take your Bible guide and turn there. Corey and Ryan are here. Corey? Well, I'm going to be taking a look at the city of Corinth itself because it has a really interesting history to it of its own right. So more on that later. Ryan? Well, today, Paul refers back to the first woman, Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And so in my segment, we're going to search out for that long-lost paradise. All right. They're coming up in about 15 minutes, and Janice is coming up in 17 minutes. Janice? With Fight the Good Fight. All right. So let's open up our Bible to 2 Corinthians 10. Let's look at it and understand what God is saying to us. Second Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. We finish the book of 2 Corinthians today, chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13. Now, the time in which we are living is a divisive one, is it not? I mean, come on, there's a lot of conflict and outright fighting outside of the church, but actually inside the church too. I've heard some argue that it has never been this way. But let me remind you that human nature is such that where people are, well, there's conflict. 
The conflicts and the way we fight, the conflicts have changed. But the fact is that there will be conflict. Now, it's safe to say that many view Christianity and the Christian church as a human institution. But we who know Jesus Christ know that the church is the people who follow Christ, not the buildings or the various authority structures. Our governments and our authorities don't determine if the church exists because the head of the church is not them. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And in 2 Corinthians, we see the Apostle Paul communicate that truth and communicate the truth that transcends time and helps us overcome conflicts. Unity in Christ and in his death and resurrection is the way that we succeed as people of God. Now let's exercise unity on the good news, the gospel, and the grace on which everything that's different may come together and be under. That would be the grace of God. <laughs> that is such a big, tall order, the grace of God. We need to focus on that. It's important and interesting. Now, as we think about this today, let's understand that God is teaching us from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're talking about divisions in the church. Now, what I'd like you to do is go to the Bible guide. If you don't have a Bible guide, you need to get on the list. The list, we're getting ready to start a new year. And we've been writing it and we're very excited. It's all new material. And I tell you the things we're going through in the world right now and all of that really reflect on God speaking to us in his word. And so I would, I would really challenge you to get, get the Bible guide so you can understand it. The most important book is the Bible and it turns to the Bible. So go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, BibleDiscoveryTV.com and click on the Bible guide and get a hold of that just like we printed it. Now today, as we look at the visions in the church, let's ask the Lord to teach us his way and show us his path, not assume our own. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that we would hear what you're saying to us today because so many of us are ready to fight for our ideas, get the people in our corner. That's what we're doing. We, we don't really need to get anybody in our corner. We need to get in your corner. Lord, we need to find out where you're at and, and go there. Because as Christians, that's who we follow. So we don't need to get in our corner and pray that somebody comes to us. We need to find you and go towards you in your word. That's how we find you. So help us today, Lord, to stay faithful to your word as we focus on this. And in Jesus' name, we said together, Amen. Now, chapter 10 is fascinating. Let's look at it. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul's getting very direct here. Certain people were accusing Paul of behaving in an unspiritual way. Christian leaders must teach the Bible and believers must know and read the Bible. I don't think there's ever been a time in history 
when we have criticized leaders like we have now. And we criticize, but do we do that based on the Bible? And how do we criticize? Biblically? I don't think so. We need to focus our attention on Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is our leader, if we are Christians. And we need to read his word daily. And we need to pray daily. And we need to hear God several times a day, I pray. But we need to hear God when he speaks to our hearts. And let me tell you something. The Lord speaks to us. He speaks to me on a regular basis. Things come my way and kick things around. And I pray and God speaks. Just like that. God speaks. If we tune ourselves, our hearing mechanisms in ourselves, to the Lord, he will speak to us. Now, let's go on because this gets really interesting. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war to the flesh, according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul makes this simple. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual, beloved. They are not physical. We need God's supernatural power to defeat Satan. Let me explain. When we come to Christ, we dedicate our life to him. We give ourselves to him. Do you know what happens? Things change in our life. The way we handle people changes. And we need to understand that the way we are, other people are convicted by that. Not by doing anything to them, but just by living for the Lord. People are Kind of convicted by that. Convicted in a good way. And that's what Paul said. Paul said, you can accuse me all you want. But let me tell you something. I'm living for Christ. Now, this is interesting. So let's read on. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ. Even so, we are Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this. That what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Taking me to this point, Paul tells the church at Corinth not to doubt the truth of the word of God. <laughs> Don't doubt that. We should always seek to know the word of God. Beloved, have you read the Bible? Do you know the word of God. That's what we need to do today. And that's what we're saying. That Paul the apostle was under attack. But they need to understand the Bible. Because we may be criticizing somebody who is acting biblically. So when we know we guide ourselves by what the Bible says. Things get very different. Lord Jesus, help us today. 
Hi, Rod Hembry. We go through the Bible in one year. It's exciting. It's great. And you can join us by searching Bible Discovery TV on your phone. That's right, on your phone, your iPhone or your Android phone. And when you do so, you'll find the app. You can download the app and watch it anytime you want. Never miss a program right here on Bible Discovery TV. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the program. My segment today has to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, in which Paul shares his concern that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And Paul's point is very well taken. But today I want to focus on another aspect of this, and that is the Garden of Eden, where this tragic deception took place. And the big question everybody wants to know is where is this long lost paradise of God? Well, there are no shortage of theories regarding its whereabouts, but the key to this, believe it or not, is the global flood of Noah. Check it out. For a great many years, man has searched high and low for the ancient Garden of Eden. And while numerous theories abound, its precise location remains elusive it causes one to wonder if this Garden of God will ever be found. Interestingly, the biblical, geological, and geographical evidence all seem to suggest that this original garden is truly forever lost. As many theologians and biblical creationists have pointed out, the Genesis flood of Noah's day, which was nothing less than global in extent, completely devastated and rearranged the topography of the earth. So Eden, wherever it was, is probably buried under kilometers of sediment. In addition, Genesis describes a river flowing out of Eden, which divided into four individual rivers. Yet there is no place on Earth today that has this unique geological feature, not even in Mesopotamia, where many believe Eden lies. Even the Bible itself seems to indicate that Eden was buried. In Ezekiel 31.18, God says to Egypt, to which of the trees in Eden will you then be likened in glory and greatness? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the depths of the earth. Although it seems likely that the Garden of Eden won't be excavated by archaeologists anytime soon, if we tease out all the geographical clues possible from Genesis 2, we can arrive at a rough model for Eden. For example, since the single river coming out of Eden breaks up into four rivers, we know that Eden must be higher than the surrounding region, perhaps much higher. This may be one of the reasons why many scholars think that Eden was located atop a mountain. Another reason might be that Ezekiel 28, which is full of Edenic imagery, refers several times to the mountain of God. It also makes sense of Isaiah's Edenic allusions, which identify the future Eden with the mountain of God, which is Mount Zion. Furthermore, as Lita Sanders and Robert Carter point out, a mountain location would also explain how there was apparently only one entrance to Eden that needed to be guarded. All other routes could have been impassable due to the steepness of the terrain at other points. Significantly, we see this garden mountain theme outside of the Bible as well. In fact, this fits the later Babylonian, Median, Persian understanding of a garden paradise. For example, the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon were apparently modeled after the mountainous region of Media. Additionally, early religious buildings from Mesopotamian ziggurats to Egyptian and Mesoamerican pyramids share a mountain-like shape. 
The idea that the gods were associated with high mountains is almost universal in ancient cultures, to the point where mountains were considered holy places, and ancient people even constructed artificial mountains as places of worship. Even though Eden is now lost, and we can only speculate about what it was like, thankfully God has promised to one day restore this perfect garden paradise for those who love him. So even though the original Garden of Eden is gone, as you saw, we can sort of scripturally reconstruct what it might have been like. The whole idea of Eden being atop a mountain is really interesting and consistent with the language used in Ezekiel and even Isaiah in their Edenic allusions. And the mountain garden theme is also consistent with extra-biblical evidence as well. Of course, the coming Eden, which is Mount Zion, is what we believers should really be excited about. God will indeed restore everything back to its perfect Edenic state. And to that I say, praise God. It's really interesting to, uh, to understand this, that the, the world has drastically changed because of the global flood. Yeah. And I believe that the flood was global because, frankly, the Bible tells us that. And so if we believe the Bible, then, you know, we believe the, it doesn't say it's a partial flood or a local flood. It says every mountain on the earth was covered. The, the global flood is, was far more dev devastating than a lot of us think. Can you imagine? It really I mean, was. The, I mean, the, the ground was, opening yeah. up with these huge, which the Bible says, these huge yeah. uh, explosions of water in the sky and all of this and the hurricanes and everything else caused by that. Uh, it is absolutely stunning. And then there's no question why the fossil record looks like it does because of the global flood. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. For sure. Very, very good. Excellent. All right, Corey, you're up. All right. Well, this is our last day studying the book of Second Corinthians. So I want to go back and take a look at the city of Corinth. Now, last week on the show, I did the same thing. But again, I just think it's so interesting to know some of the background of, uh, you know, where Paul visited, where these where these people were living, what kind of culture they were a part of and, and what history they were a part of as well. And, you know, we often just think of Corinth, the city proper, but we know historically that Corinth also had two port cities that were seen as a part of Corinth, but they were separate. Like, for example, uh, Phoebe, who's mentioned in Romans chapter 6, 16, as a servant of Christ, a, a, a servant of the church, um, she is from one of the port cities of Corinth. And, and uh, you know, scholars believe that she either went to Rome or, or Ephesus as an ambassador for Paul carrying his letters, which is really interesting. But she was from one of these port cities of Corinth. Let's see what else we can learn. The book of Acts lets us know that Paul stayed at the city of Corinth for a year and a half, despite the average one to two month stay he would have held to to account for all the cities on his travel list. Paul also wrote at least three letters to the Christian church at Corinth, represented by 1st and 2nd Corinthians. When looking at ancient Corinth, it becomes easy to see why it would have been a good place for Paul to hunker down and teach. Corinth was made a Roman colony by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. The influx of imperial money and construction that brought with it ensured the city would prosper. Settlers were brought to Corinth to kickstart its new economy and political purpose, but due to most of them being freed slaves and from poorer segments of the empire's population, they drew criticism from the more elite Roman citizenry. Despite this criticism, Corinth quickly grew into a large, prosperous Roman colony and was made the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. 
Interestingly, in Acts 18, we're told that near the end of his time in Corinth, Paul was brought before the Roman governor Gallio. It's known that Lucius Junius Gallio arrived as proconsul in the summer of 51 AD, giving us a starting time of Paul's stay around the beginning of 50 AD. Corinth was so important to the Roman Empire because of its strategic location. It controlled land and sea trade routes. At Corinth, there was a three-mile stretch of land separating the Aegean and Adriatic Seas. A specialized road with wooden cars were built that could pull smaller ships across the land, or the cargo of larger ships, saving them a 200-mile sea journey around the peninsula. Corinth also housed a large temple to the god of healing. Sick pilgrims would travel from all around so they could go to the temple to bathe, dine, exercise, and stay, waiting for healing. In Paul's time, Corinth was also responsible for the great Isthmian Games, sporting competitions held every two years in honor of the sea god and by his shrine about 10 miles from the city. The massive arrival of athletes and spectators brought what they still do to this day, money and unfortunately, prostitution. At Corinth, Paul could preach to travelers, sailors, and merchants who could then spread the gospel far and wide. Thanks to the city's well-connected location, he could send missionaries and letters quickly. The Isthmian Games created a thriving market for Paul's tent-making profession to financially support himself, and it would have opened evangelistic opportunities to preach to the crowds. Corinth's bustling life gained a reputation for outrageous immorality. Travelers and revelers grew the city's seedy underbelly and the population kept it going. Paul's emphasis on outstanding moral living reflects this. If Gentile Christianity could thrive here in the most immoral of places, then it could thrive anywhere. There we go. Corinth, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's so much information on the ancient city of Corinth that is available, but this was just, I tried to do a nicely packaged informative segment for you. So there you go. It's, you, it's a beginning on it for you. You could go on and on with this because there's so much being discovered. It is a, an amazing place. That's true. I just remember that if you wanted to insult somebody, you would say, stop acting like a Corinthian. That was Lovely. a real insult. You know? <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> so anyway, very, very interesting. Go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, BibleDiscoveryTV.com for more information, articles, and all kinds of good things. BibleDiscoveryTV.com. Jen? Fight the good fight. What do I mean? Hmm. My dad. Remember? He was a golden glove boxer. Now, that was a little bit before my time. He was a featherweight. I'm not talking about those kind of punches, am I, Dad? And now he is a warrior, a spiritual warrior for the Lord, and especially for us, our family, our his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. And this is what Paul is talking about here, the spiritual war that we as believers face. And there's a right way and a wrong way to fight. God's supernatural power is required to defeat Satan and his strongholds in our life. Did you hear me say that? The supernatural power of God is required in us to defeat Satan and his stronghold and believers experience this power by putting on the armor of God that Paul talks about to us in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to begin at verse 13 so that those of you that are saying, what is she talking about? Listen to what the armor of God is for us to put on because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 6, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. 
Ephesians 6, starting at 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplications in the spirit, that's God's spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. These are the the tools that we need from God's Holy Spirit, whose presence indwells in those who are believers in Jesus Christ, to help us to tear down these strongholds in the name of Jesus. It is not in our strength that we fight, like my dad was a boxer and would use his arms and his legs and every other part of him to deliver those blows. We can't do that in the spiritual world. We need the power of God through us. So we need to make ourselves available to do that in our world. Um, I want to talk about fighting the good fight because it's later that Paul writes to his spiritual son, Timothy, and he's encouraging him to fight the good fight. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, Paul says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So this is not fighting in the physical, but keeping close to the servitude and love of God. First Timothy 6 verse 12, he continues to speak to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So we need to, as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to have that confession of faith. It is Christ crucified and his resurrection. What God, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He's bridged that gap. He's reconciled us to our Father God, and it's only through him that we can come to the Father. 2 Timothy 4 verse 7. This is Paul closing out his letter, and this is what he says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's the important uh, war that we wage, isn't it, Rob? That's the, and those are the last words that he ever wrote. That he ever wrote. Isn't that so? I, every time I read them, I have to restrain from, from getting really emotional. What a, what a powerful statement. Let me read it again. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's 2 mm. Timothy 4, 7. That's the last words of Paul the Apostle, the great, uh, the great apostle for the Gentiles, for all of us. And he was a wonderful Jew and understood God's I, I want to talk with him when we get to heaven. <laughs> uh, I really do. But he was a great guy. That, that's excellent. So let's remember that as we continue to study the Bible and we are working our way towards Revelation. <laughs> 